Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a talk and a guided activity with Joanna Macy at the 2019 Resilience Gathering hosted at Commonweal. So the other day in my morning newspaper, The Chronicle, it came with this wrapped around it. The end times, the world ends May 31st. So we kind of missed it. It turns out it's a movie, right? But I thought it was very striking considering that we were putting this together. Um, when we had a couple, a few earlier meetings uh, to talk about starting the Resilience Project, one of the people we heard obviously was Nate and Michael and I agreed right from that day he's our guy to bring here and and do that talk and you saw why to distill so much down. And then we were talking some more. Who else should we have? And there were a bunch of names, but one was Joanna Macy, who lives over in Berkeley. And we thought, well, wouldn't that be great <laughs> if we could get her? And lucky for me, about 20 years ago, when I was in a very dark place, basically PTSD from about 15 years of working in the HIV epidemic in San Francisco, and always having had an apocalyptic mindset about the future, to the degree that, as mentioned earlier, I, it was a big part of my decision not to have children. I saw that there was a retreat over the hill here at Spirit Rock, which is a Buddhist retreat place, and I'd never done one of these, and it was almost a week long, I think five days and six nights, with Joanna Macy. And it was titled, one of the titles of her landmark book, which is World as Lover, World as Self. It was put together for activists, basically, as opposed to just a pure sitting type retreat. And I signed up. Okay, I'll commit. I'll go to this. Although I wasn't quite committed because I drove out and I still had my mountain bike on the roof and my surfboard. So I say, if this is really boring or cheesy, I'm out of here. The end of it, I didn't want it to end because it was so engaging and she was so amazingly... Uh, impressive to me on a scientific level, on a spiritual level, and just on a personal level. So we have um, remained and become friends ever since then. And last year we had her here. She filled this room for a discussion that you can see on uh, the New School Commonweal website, if you wish. So we asked her if she would come today, and she graciously said yes. So. I'm going to get out of her way. We asked her to speak here. I think many of you, most of you know who she is, but really one of the pioneers in talking about just the questions we're talking about today, even before a lot of the big reports on climate came out, etc. That's one of her books. Her newest one, I believe it's newest, is Active Hope, How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy, right? And her autobiography, I commend to you highly, too. It's called Widening Circles, and it's a story of a life that is just amazing to read. Everything from working for the CIA to <laughs> becoming who she is now. And I will just add, she's also an esteemed translator of Rilke. So there are books like this too. I recommend these to you. They definitely have a bearing, <clears throat> excuse me, on what we are talking about today. So please welcome the one and only Dr. Joanna Mason. I am so excited to be with an audience of people who are not afraid to hear about what's happening to their world. Um, so I could talk all day, but I'm not going to. I want to just say 
that in 1977, that is 42 years ago, I went to the Boston Coliseum with my two, two of my teenage children. I had just completed a PhD on thesis on systems theory and Buddhist teachings and looking forward to an academic career. Um, it would be a late starting career since I was already in my late 40s, but at any rate, uh, the Cousteau Society was putting on a, uh, an incredible day on the threats to the biosphere. And on every level of the uh, Colosseum, there were booths and displays, panels, and rooms with um, uh, people discussions and lectures on absolutely every aspect of what we're uh, doing. Not just the ocean, though Jacques-Yves Cousteau was there himself and shared his uh, deep concern uh, about the disappearance of the plankton uh, as important to our oxygen as the forests are. And he was very uh, almost, yeah, very discouraged and discouraging about that. I was familiar with almost all the information. And uh, I took notes and I said, well, yeah, I, was, I, I because my family and I had been very involved in a macroanalysis seminars from the Movement for a New Society that we'd been leading. So I, but something happened to me at the end of that day where something I saw, and I was trying, you can ask me later, but it's like all the information in, that I had, which was up here, some pins were pulled out and it all cascaded down through every part of my body heart, gut, and I heard myself say, we are destroying our world. And I knew that in a way that was beyond discussion because it was I'd been living with the data uh, for previous decades. I went into a dark night of the soul uh, for about 15 months because I didn't have anybody I could talk to about it, compare the symptoms, how it feels. For one, I didn't want, I wanted to protect my family. I didn't want them to know what I was going through. And uh, my uh, peers, my uh, academic in the part, department of religion, wouldn't you think? <laughs> Avoidance, patronizing. Surely, Joanne, you're not thinking that all consciousness in the universe is in this one planet. It's the planet we have. It's the planet we know. It's the planet we are. So at any rate, I was uh, the... Um, what brought me out was uh, Ralph Nader's critical mass um, focus uh, organization and... Uh, group of us uh, took, I joined a group in a lawsuit against a nuclear power plant to windward of Washington to try to stop them from racking the fuel rods to uh, close together that to, uh, for them, per, per, um, the regulations permitted and brings them close to criticality. 
and the defeat of that, but it didn't matter whether it won or not. I had this information that I wanted to tell people. It was about the health effects. That was what I was supposed to look up. I went right to the Nuclear Regulatory Committee. No one wanted to hear it. We're not surprised. How do you bring it up? By the way, did you know? Let me talk to you about it. Have you ever thought? <laughs> and uh, so that I became so fascinated by the phenomenon of denial, the phenomenon of repressing uh, the negative emotions about our world. And it wouldn't leave me. So I thought, and then I thought, well, um, there is uh, Buddha nature in us all. There is what uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, that wonderful Zen master, said uh, to those who said, what should we do to help our world? And he said, the most important thing to do is to hear the sounds of the earth crying in your heart. What a statement. As if the sounds of the earth crying were inside me. But then I thought, well, that's a natural thing to say, given what I've learned about systems and about the Buddha Dharma. So I began gathering people together for the purpose, and I'd been teaching meditation too, so I started there, a walking around pain. What's it like to feel physical and mental and moral pain? How do we speak? I, and I got it right away that what people needed was not me telling them anything. Was not me t being of Paul Revere about the condition of the world. But to invite them, create a situation in which they could speak. And I found that open sentences, for starters, was great. Much better than a question like, what do you think? How do you feel? Give them an open sentence. When I face the collapse of <laughs> our society, I feel. Now you just repeat after me and end that sentence. All right. Well, when I face the collapse of society, I have a little, and then it starts. So it's like the open sentence is a kind of slide that you go down and into. And then pretty soon, it feels so good to hear from parts of yourself that you had been shutting up in an inner closet. And I was just uh, telling Steve that, or maybe at any rate, I think it was Steve, but um, the, in those early years, the rate of people who fell in love with each other at my workshops, <laughs> I would <laughs> So it's... <laughs> If you're looking for some romantic romance, <laughs> this is. And so I found another. Uh, I became. I began to realize that we were tapping not only repressed emotions, but what they could bridge to, which was the realm of moral imagination. And I think many of us here this morning were speaking from that. How do we imagine that we can uh, live up to this, be this great simplification? This book I brought along to show you. It's from, in France, uh, last year. Um, 
Une autre fin du monde est possible. Another end of the world is possible. Where they are looking in the great young Pablo Servini and others are doing beautiful uh, work publicly and with young people flocking to talking about collapse and even developing a school of thought, which they call collapsologie. <laughs> yes. So that we began uh, to see, we were playing around, but that we were following a plot line in the given workshop, uh, whether it was a day or a half a day or a weekend or a week, that was uh, in the form of a cycle or a wheel, but it's like more like a spiral because it could go around where you begin with where all the great spiritual traditions begin with gratitude. Because what this world asks of us more than anything else, not our smarts, not our saintliness, not our superego, but our gratitude, our, no, excuse me, our full presence to show up however we are. If we just be present, and a tool for that is gratitude. Even if you're saying, hmm, now this, the spices I love, or the weather I love, or the uh, look in the eyes of old men that I love, anything uh, to list what the, and that helps you uh, get out of, you can't experience gratitude and feel defended against painful information, can you? And that grounds you. Also what I liked about gratitude always as I discovered was that gratitude is there is independent of external circumstances. The indigenous people know that, especially those in this country. They're great Thanksgiving. Whatever's going on, don't we? That's the moment for, for gratitude and it's there. And also, gratitude is a revolutionary act. And if you believe, as I do, that the uh, corporate capitalism and the consumer society has a lot to do with the uh, breakdown of our uh, natural systems in this. Uh, gratitude is wonderful because it frees you from the neediness that is required to be subjected, to be a part, the self-loathing even that's required and engendered by the consumer society. If you don't get these connections right away, you will in a minute. What I noticed um, within the first year or so, um, to my surprise, is that, oh wait a minute, I didn't tell you the rest of the spiral. So there's gratitude and then we go into honoring our pain for the world. We don't try to explain it, we don't diagnose it, we don't try to excuse it, we don't dress it up in other clothes, we don't sit on it. We respect it. We honor it for what it is. Uh, the heart is breaking. It hurts to see. It's awful to feel. I don't want to know. Tell me all the things you don't want to know. That's a great exercise. And that what happens, I discover. So this was a whole process of discovery for me because nobody else I knew was doing this. 
And uh, so never be afraid to invent new things. And I've um, found that uh, the pain for the world would certainly include outrage and anger, certainly include sorrow, great grief, uh, dread and fear, and also deprivation and failure and powerlessness. And we saw to speak this in open sentences is fine, but the best is through ritual. And to, um, there's some forms of ritual. In a ritual, you know, you can speak for the whole. And the definitions and the conventions around uh, that make it a ritual is that your sense you're speaking for the whole. It's in an archetypal voice from this moment. And actually it's beautiful how the language sometimes that is, is, is uh, so suitably prophetic and poetic and deep. Uh, and then they say that this, say you're suffering with the world. That's what we do. That's what all this equipment is in our heart, minds, and fingertips and our neurology. We suffer with our world, just like the way we live, love our world. And the literal meaning of suffering with is compassion. You're a compassionate one. As we're born, that's our equipment. That's the definition of a bodhisattva. So we reframe just feeling the pain so that you can, and understanding it, um, and then being liberated, then liberated from a being anchored in a separate self. So this, I found that the uh, sequestration of the self in five centuries of hyper-individualism of the Western culture, which is being broadcast, you know, through or taken globally through our global economy, is uh, a cruel thing for us all that we put so much of our sense of what and who we are into this little prison cell of the ego, or as my, one of my teachers, James Hillman, the Jungian psychologist, talked about it as the lonely cowboy ego. And we could, in order to be real in our times and take in what's happening to our world, there's this, not as a should, but it seems to happen naturally, that the world becomes your larger body, that you are a living body within the living body of Earth. And the, you are in conversation with it, but you are also in Earth's hands. And that there are all kinds of um, spiritual ways of being able to express that. And then the next part of the plot line is seeing with new eyes where you can begin largely through uh, role plays um, to play around with deep ecology and deep time. And deep ecology, which we were very drew a lot from the deep long-range ecology movement of decades back, uh, has the notion that as we mature as a self, we grow our ecological self, even our 
which is you who you indisputably, preciously, not like any other, but you're pilled in this larger body that lets you display your uniqueness and act your responsibility of participation. Choice. I feel that the at the core of all that I've learned and have worked with, what's guided me over the last 42 years of this, is a, from the beginning, from systems and dharma, it's where they come together, it's where you find the self is, is always changing. And it, if, if you're looking for it, it's in the act of choice making, in decision making, in what you want and choose and act on. And that this can help you to the moment where you are in the uh, present, where is where not yesterday and not tomorrow, where you can be with this unfolding drama of the um, of this beautiful planet, and then the story. Then you can see the story you're acting, and you can choose. There are three major things happening at the same time. One is the industrial growth society. And those are mostly what you hear people talking about in the great institutions and the government and the media and the military. And, and then there's another story, and we call it the great unraveling. So we have been working with, for these four decades with the sense, and that sort of built into the limits to growth, which goes back to 1970, with the fact that we have the data to show that the web of life is unraveling. And the third choice is, or what's happening, is that there is a transition. There is the great turning to a life-sustaining society. We don't call it sustainable. That's a tricky word. Life-sustaining. And that we can find our way into that exciting drama. That's our choice we can make again and again. Thank you for listening. Joanna, I want to ask you a question. If we were to spend a little time as a follow-up to this with one of those open sentences uh, just to explore together, what is the sentence that you would choose for today for us to work with for a little while? I have it. Okay. But I'm not going to tell you. Okay. <laughs> because you, you're going to do it. We're going to do it. You want, you want to participate? You want me to do it now? Yeah. Just, okay. Just, but tell us what the sentence is. And no. Then I, how you want. I, I don't leave it that way. You have to get into a pair. And once you're sitting facing Oh, it's a pair thing. Okay. So we'll try that. What is the sentence? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> All right. Good. All right. Thank you. Please sit down facing I will. someone. I will. I'll face you. All right. I'd like you all to stand up. Grab your chair. Move it so that it's facing someone else. Now let's try with someone you don't know. That's been suggested. 
I don't have a bell, so I'll ding. All right, we're going to do an open sentence or two. And I, well, at first I ask you to quickly tap your partner on the knee. And the first tapper is partner A, and the other is partner B. And so what I am going to ask you to do is to, one after the other, starting with partner A, say, repeat an open, first part of an open sentence uh, that I will give you, and then just continue it. And so the key to the effectiveness of this for yourself and the interest for your partner, of course, is to avoid generalities and abstractions. So if I were to say to you, the question is, uh, for breakfast I had this morning, and you were to say, for breakfast I had some food, that'd be so boring. So we don't want to do this with the open sentences. We want to let the actual particularities of life uh, enliven uh, yourself and the other. Okay? Okay, partner A, ready? As I face the collapse of a civ our civilization, what I am feel grateful for is. As I face the collapse of our society, what I feel grateful for is. Ding! Thank you. Okay. Now, partner B, it's your turn. Oh. You can hear this retroactively. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, partner B, it's your turn. When I face the collapse of our whole culture, what I am grateful for is Thank you very much. Now there's a... a I have made room for a second open sentence, and this time we will begin with partner B. As I face the collapse of our culture, as I face the collapse of our civilization, what breaks my heart is, you know, unless we're facing the collapse, as we face the collapse of our society, what breaks my heart is. Thank you. 
And now let's give partner A a chance. As I face the collapse of this civilization, what breaks my heart is Thank you very much, and take time to thank your partner. First of all, I want, I want you to remember or know that the heart that breaks open can hold the whole universe. It's that big. It is in this precious present moment that we can feel the vitality and presence, the full presence uh, of ourself in this world. Again and again and again. Now there are uh, a couple of things I wanted to call your attention to. Uh, I have found that there's a book on collapse that's helpful called Reinventing Collapse by Dmitri Orloff. You say he had lived through the uh, collapse of the uh, political economy in, in Russia uh, between roughly 1988 and 95. Uh, there it was not an a ecological devastation so much as, of course, an eco economic one. But it went through the bottom falling out of people's lives. Their money meaning nothing. Their rank meaning nothing. And how they, uh, how they got by and what they learned. And he writes, he's part American because he became an American citizen when he came to visit here in the early 90s. Now he's back and forth. So there's that, reinventing collapse. And that's sort of interesting uh, exercises like um, something as simple as reflecting in your life of, of determining what's a necessity and what's a convenience. Looking around my home, uh, which seems all oh, pretty simple, but then I think of when you get down to it, there are really three things we need to stay alive. Air, water, food. Um, and the ways you... Uh, Re reconfigure for yourself the productivity of your life. Richard Heinberg's book, Afterburn, where, and particularly what I love about this book is very few people talk about it, but uh, he calls it a chapter on our evanescent culture. And he's looking at how dependent, I didn't, haven't seen this in any comments so far today or heard it, but we're electricity dependent. And not only so, okay, well, the lights go out, they go out. And our ancestors up just, a, you know, a few generations ago, they didn't have electricity. No, we can just adjust back. Uh-uh. For many reasons. And there's to one he goes into here which is the loss of our knowledge through 
digitalization. So much of what we need even on a daily basis for how to treat an infection or measles or what to, is, has been digitalized and so convenient. So much of the history and geography of our planet has been uh, in the laptop. Our uh, youth and school students can just, they don't need to remember anything. So is this going to be, it, he, he describes this. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> he describes this in a way that very few people are. The trap we've set for ourselves uh, by digitalizing so much of our knowledge. And then I, um, there was reference made to Jem Bendel, who is the um, professor at Cumbria University in the UK that wrote just 10 months ago this paper where he had been a professor of um, sustainability leadership and he'd taken a year off to look at climate change and uh, he came out realizing that everything he'd been teaching uh, wouldn't be, ap most, most everything he was teaching wouldn't be really applicable. And he had the uh, courage and he described it recently. It was on when he was giving a talk in Australia, and he, for weeks beforehand, he was sort of wondering if he dared, do I dare say this? I'm going to be ruined. And, um, and then he found after he gave this talk, which became his paper called Deep Adaptation, um, that there were uh, clusters of people coming up to him and said, oh, thank you for saying that, or I've been feeling that. What I have found particularly helpful are four, uh, the four R's that he proposes. And I just did a day-long workshop in Oakland uh, uh, in an urban farm and his um, population where we went through these four R's, but interactively. And I'll tell you what they are, but you'll see them online. Um, the first R is resilience, and he defines that as what are the values and what are the behaviors that we really, that we have and want to hang on to. And that was, I'm so familiar with these four, I'll tell you the other three, but was, I was startled that when in the workshop what we did was we had everybody, we were about 20 only, 20, 25, we counted out by fours and had all the ones and twos meet separately. So you'd meet in a group with a separate one of these. So you'd be in a group with this resilience. And they were mostly in their 20s and 30s, but just popping ideas. And it was uh, a tonic. <laughs> yes, we can make it. It was so wonderful. All right, that's the first one is what do we need to, uh, what do we already have? that we want to be sure to keep and use. The second R is relinquishment. I just love the way that sounds. It makes it sound so mm, silky. It's just, just letting go. What are the values and behaviors uh, we need to let go of and expectations? My group, you want to know, was the third R, which is, I call restoration. What are the values and habits and behaviors that we 
uh, our kind used to have? What do we want to go back and bring forward from the past? And it was fun doing that with this uh, young people from uh, different uh, colors and uh, cultures there. Uh, and, and what was coming up, and it all seemed so inviting. And then the um, fourth, so the fir when his first paper came out, there were those three. Uh, but uh, as he lived with this, and this has been a huge roller coaster for him too, and he has stayed with this. He, this then came this one, which is a, a wonderful question for us, and I'll close with that. Reconciliation. What do we want to make peace with while we can? In our family, in our neighborhood, in our class, in our politics, in our um, species, in our work, in our community, in our internationally, globally. So I close with that. Uh, looking forward to the good times we'll have as we think more and more and feel in us the joys of the reconciliation that can come with this adventure upon us. Thank you. You've been listening to a TNS presentation with Joanna Macy at the 2019 Resilience Gathering hosted at Commonweal. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>